This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity. Welcome to another episode of Equity Made. It's a podcast where we follow our journey to invest. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividends so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Can't wait for this episode. One of our favorite expert investors has come back for the show. Yes, we must be doing something right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is our pleasure to welcome Paul Wilson back for the second time. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. For those that haven't listened to our first episode with Paul, we suggest uh, you go back and listen to that. It was a, a great deep dive into Paul's sort of philosophy of investing and everything that they're doing over at Baylor Technology Investments. So please do. But Paul has had extensive private equity investment experience as a director of Champ Private Equity in Sydney and New York with MetLife in London and as an executive director at media-focused investment group Illyria, which is private investment company for Lachlan Murdoch. Paul is also co-founder and partner of Bailador, which is a specialist investor in IT and media. He is a director of Sightminder, Straker Translations, Stackler, the Rajasthan Royals IPL Cricket Franchise and ASX-listed Vita Group Limited. So, Paul, you've got a lot going yeah, on. Yeah, not busy at all. <laughs> and every time we meet you, you're at the beach, up in Bondi, <laughs> living the dream. We've got great teams. Yeah, <laughs> that's the key. That is the key. We've brought Paul back in because when we last spoke to him, COVID hadn't happened and there's a lot that's been going on in markets since. And uh, we have a few questions about more specifically how he managed the process at Baylor Door. So looking forward to getting stuck in. Yeah, but before we do, we do play a little bit of a game here, uh, overrated or underrated, where we throw out a few indexes or themes that we may not otherwise touch on. And as Bryce said, COVID has happened since we last spoke. So I guess this is a COVID-adjusted version of the game. So overrated or underrated, how the ASX 200 has gone during this COVID period? Okay, I feel like I should give a general health warning here that I'm not usually a macro investor. I'm very uh, focused on specific tech growth companies. But in the interest of playing the game, I would say I'm neutral to positive on ASX 200. So slightly underrated. A lot of it seems to be driven and dependent on a government stimulus though. And uh, certainly the Australian government has given every indication that they'll continue to pump prime. So on that basis, underrated. 
Moving overseas then, overrated or underrated, the NASDAQ 100? I'd say relatively neutral. Once again, government is going to play a role. Very different reasons, though. The, the, the large tech companies are juggernauts that are very, very hard to stop from this point. But one thing that could give them a speed bump is regulation. Mm. Uh, so it's sort of looking at it through the other lens. One of the features of the US response during this COVID period has been the Federal Reserve just printing and buying at an unprecedented level, level, I think $7 trillion or something around there at last count. Overrated or underrated, that Federal Reserve response? I think uh, it was probably generally the right thing to do. You know, they've, they've got to keep things ticking along and uh, they probably don't mind if it does devalue their currency a little bit given the trade wars that are going on. Mm. Mm. Overrated or underrated here, we've seen both a huge run in, in tech stocks and overseas in America. Overrated or underrated the run in tech stocks? Well, look, <laughs> I would say justified. It's hard to say underrated when there's been such a run. But balancing that, there's a long, long way to go in performance of these companies. I've touched on the the big US names are just so dominant now. I think generally speaking, investors have started to cotton on to just how powerful these tech companies can be, just how effective some software models can be. So I, I do think there's a long, long way to run. Talking my own book, I would say if you if you want to get one of those growth companies that's got a long way to run, but way cheaper, you get them in an earlier stage. And, mm. and that's exactly what we do a Bailador. We'll get stuck into Bailador in a little bit. I don't know if I can say this, but we've interviewed a lot of experts on the podcast. Very few I've gone out and bought a fund after we've interviewed them, but Bailador was one that I did. So <laughs> I guess full disclosure as we have this conversation that last time you convinced me and I, uh, I'm an owner. <laughs> Are you here to be reconvinced? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm wavering a little bit. So <laughs> Has it gone well? We'll get to how it went during COVID because uh, it, went, uh, it went up and down. So down, down, and, down up. and up, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> but before we do, we normally ask the story of people's first investments. We've already asked you that when you came on the show last time, so we won't retread that ground. Instead, we want to ask you a more general question. Why do you invest? Okay, great question. I'll answer it by explaining why I began to invest and then kind of roll it into why I still do. I began to invest specifically targeting venture capital, growth companies, private companies. Part of the reason was I, I grew up in Queensland. I was seeing businesses that were getting to a certain stage and just getting taken over. And so I thought, oh, well, what can we do to help these businesses just keep growing and employing people in the local community and then become successful on the global stage? And so that germ of an idea really took hold in my early 20s, and it's kind of been my North Star ever since. Now, along the way, as uh, was outlined by Bryce, I spent time in New York, London, I did buyouts. I became a little bit less philanthropic in my attitude and made some, <laughs> made some money, uh, which then allowed me to focus back on my true passion, which is expansion stage, and pleased to say that we now have a track record of helping lots of Australian businesses go and conquer the world and become world leaders in their segment, employ thousands of people and contribute to a vibrant tech and tech business sector here in Australia. So that's really the thing that gets me out of bed and excites me about what we do. Yeah, I love that. Such an exciting, I guess, area of investment, that early stage sort of growth. So speaking of Bailador, Paul, COVID came pretty quickly, impacted uh, the Bailador share price along with the share price of many, many other companies. But internally, we're interested to understand a bit about how you navigated that sort of COVID period. Sure. I mean, put myself in that frame of mind. It was interesting because markets everywhere were falling. There was just so much uncertainty. And without question, all of the businesses that I'm involved with, the first 
priority was the teams, the staff, making sure people were healthy. And then the second element of that is working out, well, can we afford to keep paying everybody? What's the, what's the mm-hmm. right size here? And you really don't know that until you know what your, your revenue is. And so it was a complex Rubik's Cube. You had to think about your customers in multiple markets at once, any government response. And then do you need to take any action to right size your cost base? And the other factor for us is we have employees all over the world. So in places like Australia, the government response was fast and clear as it was in New Zealand. And that allowed us to really not have to take many heads out at all in that first instance, whereas places like Spain, it was much, much more difficult. The the government basically said, you're on your own. And so it was a different response depending on different markets and different industries. Now, in businesses like SiteMinder, which leverages the travel industry, specifically hotels, I think a lot of people and a lot of our investors probably thought initially, oh boy, this could be really bad for SiteMinder. I was concerned, but actually quietly confident that the business model would be fine because 92% of gross margin for SiteMinder comes from monthly subscription revenue. And so unless a hotel actively switches off the software platform, you're going to maintain the the bulk of your revenue and gross margin and, and, and you'll be fine. You just might not get the growth acceleration for a little while. And then if you take that one step further, Will hotels survive? Most hotels actually can survive on about 30 or 40% occupancy. And one of the last things they're going to do is switch off something that generates additional revenue for them that costs about $200 a month. And so I was very confident in the model and where we sat in the ecosystem. And even if you take it one step further, many hotels are infrastructure-based. So if one operator goes out of business, someone else probably steps in unless the infrastructure is repurposed. that's our biggest holding, SiteMinder, and it's uh, it's been super solid through the whole of COVID. But once again, so often the answer lies below the surface. You have to look at where the hotel activity is is strong and where it's weak. Basically, in economies where there's a lot of international travel dependence, it's weak, like Thailand. If there's a strong domestic travel like a Germany or US, hotels are very strong. Now, weaker in the cities, stronger in the regions. Weaker for corporate, stronger for tourism. So you just refocus. And so having a nimble management team that can react to that quickly is really key. And I've been so impressed with all of our management teams, their ability to react, the care for their teams, and then switching over to some of the business that have benefited a lot. So we were chatting just before we, we started the podcast here. Brossa, for example, is, a, is an online furniture retailer. So you could hardly get a better setting than having thousands of people locked in their living rooms looking at their old furniture, (laughs) thinking, gee, I could use an upgrade, but they can't go to a store, so they go online. And so that business has benefited tremendously, both in top-line growth and and profitability. And that's indicative of the benefits and the success that e-commerce is having across the board. We've had a number of other businesses that are going very, very well through this. Lendy is is an online home loan platform. And you might not initially think that there'd be a benefit there. The benefit for Lendy streams from the fact that they are so good at what they do. And so if people are sitting around and they think, oh, interest rates are dropping, maybe I should look at refinancing. If they go online, Lendy's got an incredibly powerful funnel to capture those leads and then to 
progress qualification of individual borrowers and match them up with lenders. And so they've been incredibly successful through this period. And there's been uh, a number of articles in the press speculating about imminent IPO for Lendy. And certainly that business model and that management team can handle being a public company. Yeah, nice. For people who are unfamiliar with Bailador, we should just cover off. So Bailador is listed on the ASX, ticker BTI. It's a listed investment company that invests in early stage Australian technology companies. Correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong. It's pretty good. And You're an investor, Ren. You should have done your research. <laughs> and currently it has a portfolio of... Of 10 companies. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So if people want to check it out as we're talking ASX ticker BTI. That's right. One thing that I find quite compelling about your approach is how conservative you are around valuing the companies in your portfolio. I think after we last spoke, I was doing some research and you were happy to value companies at zero. If, if there was uncertainty or risk or there was a material disruption to their business, even when other investors probably wouldn't do that. With the uncertainty caused by COVID, how did you go about trying to value the companies and trying to price in all that uncertainty? Sure. So you're right. We uh, we tend to be very conservative. We tend to only change our valuations when there's been a third party investment or if it's been a year past that, we'll take a look to see if there's been significant change. What I can tell you, there's been 21 third party transactions in the portfolio companies 21 out of 21 have been at or above our carrying value. So that's pretty good empirical evidence endorsement, I suppose, that, that we are being conservative. How did we go about it with COVID? First of all, we determined whether the businesses would need additional capital because if they did and there was a third party round, then you've, you've got a benchmark. I'm really pleased to say that uh, none of our 10 companies have needed any additional capital through the whole of COVID. Nice. And so generally there's a sentiment that says, oh, well, it must be higher risk. It's earlier stage. It's, it's tech. And yes, there's a lot of validity to that comment, but just look at the facts. Look how many ASX 200 companies were forced to raise capital in emergency raising at big discounts, and none of our small, supposedly high-risk companies did at all, and uh, and there's no plans to. If we raise capital for any of them, it'll be to drive further growth. And so strong business models, good product market fit, make sure all those elements are still there. Look at the data. We always just are driven by the facts, driven by the data. What's actually happened to our subscribers? What's actually happened to revenue? Have we controlled our cost base? Is there any more cash burn than there was before? Or are we in fact better? And so we just looked at all those fundamentals that we always do in determining the valuations. If you spoke about companies raising at pretty low valuations and, and getting slammed, were you going out there and looking for any bargains? Yeah, we were and still are. And that is both for bailout or for new investments, but also for opportunities for our portfolio companies. So, uh, you know, a business like Sightminder, which has, you know, a very hefty cash balance and, and a great market position and is a software business, so it's nice and stable, is in a great place because there's a lot of travel-related businesses out there that are transaction-based, volume-based, and they're not in a great place. And so we, we've looked at a number of those to see if there's some tech or some particular aspects, even geographic spread that we could pick up. And so that that's an ongoing situation, and a number of our companies are doing the same thing. There you go. So no companies that you can announce on the show today? Give us the exclusive. <laughs> I'd, oh, no, I'd get myself in there's, trouble. There's probably some ASX rules around. <laughs> I want to. There's, there's so much action happening in almost all of our companies. Yeah. Should be quite a bit of news flow over the next few months. Great. For something like Sightminder, though, what's your thesis in terms of you know, the next two or three years as to what's to come? Because surely that's coming to play around. Well, are we expecting it to get back to 100% or like... 
Where's, where are you thinking with that? Yeah. Once again, we try and be driven by the actual facts and not crystal ball too much. Mm. What I can say is this, that the, the subscription revenue base to SiteMind is super solid and that will continue to grow, but the, the pace is hard to predict based on lockdowns, essentially. Yeah, okay. The transaction-based part of SiteMind's business is super exciting because we've continued to win new customers and we've we've kept the, the bulk of the existing customers. So as volumes do come back, that will go on a tear and grow much, much faster. Right. So that's our payments product. It's where we clip the ticket on some bookings. We processed over $40 billion worth of bookings through the platform last year. So you only need a little piece. Wow. And uh, and so you know, that's a bit of direction of one of the avenues we're considering for acquisition for SiteMinder is could we pick up something that leverages that even further, but, but pick it up pretty cheaply. Mm. So then, you know, we had previously raised money for SiteMinder at a, at a billion dollar valuation compared to the original bail-it-or entry value of 25 million. Uh, and we, there's that growth you're talking about. Yeah. Now, this is our, our biggest winner so far, but we think we've got a number of companies that are capable of doing this. But on SiteMinder, at the time of that raise, we mentioned that we were then looking towards a, an ASX listing. I think that's still the logical avenue for SiteMinder. It's just the timing that's in question. Mm-hmm. But but with its uh, with its existing metrics, it'd be in the top handful of software companies on the ASX immediately. Wow. Yeah. Well, wow. on that IPO point, what's Baylor's philosophy when it comes to your portfolio companies becoming public? Do you look to sell your positions, or are you happy to own public equities? So if you look at what we've done so far, we we've IPO'd one business, Straker Translations, and in that one, we sold down about. 10 10% of our position at IPO, and that produced an IRR from memory of around 43%. We then sold down another 10% once our shares came out of escrow, produced a similar return. The share price had gone up by about 30-odd percent uh, by that time, and we held the rest of the position. Interestingly for Straker, the price has come off since then, but there's a lot of super positive things coming for that company, so absolutely not a seller. But at some point in time, we'll we'll continue to, to harvest some cash. That's probably indicative of what we would do with some other companies, and we do have a number who are heading towards IPO, probably sell a little bit at IPO and then gradually sell down over time in order to recycle back into new investments and pay some frank dividends. Mm -hmm. Has COVID changed your, I guess, investing approach or your universe at all? Yeah, what it's done is produced more rapid winners and some some losers. So, uh, you know, in, in the e-commerce universe, that whole segment's on a tear. Payments is a sector that's super hot mm. and public markets are rewarding businesses even at small scale. And so, look, frankly, we're, we're probably not super active in payments things right now because of that sort of level of competition. Our core focus historically has been software as a service businesses and uh, I would say that that'll continue. It's a super solid model. We just are seeing industries that mm. are bigger winners and, and losers. And so it's all about looking at the, the metrics they produce. How much does it cost to acquire a customer? How much do you get in the lifetime value of that customer? You really want to be making five times your cost for a solid company. Some can make much more, seven, eight times. If you get one of those, then you, you want to see if you can jump on board as long as you think it's going to be sustainable. So one of the big things at the moment is, is trying to to anticipate what's a short-term surge versus what's a a longer-term sustainable higher growth rate. And so that's probably one of the changes. We were just talking about DocuSign, for example, that and you know, with the announcement of the vaccine overnight, we're recording on the 10th of November, well, potential vaccine anyway, and how a lot of the tech stocks were sold off because of 
potential, I guess, changes in how people are going to live their lives if vaccines comes through. It's, yeah, something that's hard to anticipate what's coming. Yeah, yeah it is. And um, look, you, you can go back and look at uh, what happened to tech prices generally. We alluded to it earlier. Things were sold off but then bounce back super quickly mm. when people mm. started to realise what was actually happening in the real world. Yeah, lots of movement, but that creates opportunity. Yeah. yeah. I want to get to that share price point, but before we do, we're just going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com upgrade. So, Paul, you mentioned there that things fell off and then bounced back very quickly. And I think the Bailador share price was one example of that. It fell a scratch over 50% in, what, a month, maybe? And then it's recovered. It's up now 100%. So it's basically recovered all the ground it lost. I'm interested to know, I guess, to start with, what was that like for you watching that price fall so quickly? Like, was that something you were paying attention to or did you try and just block it out? It's it's uh, truthfully. Interesting... Come on. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just sort of putting my my mind back in that time and place. It, it was interesting because I obviously had pretty good insight into how portfolio companies were going, and I was trying to explain that to the market through our commentary in the NTA statement and so on. But it was the sort of environment where it pretty much doesn't matter what you say, you, you're going to get slammed. Yeah, and yeah. so we actually scaled back a little bit on uh, some of our comms and just said, look, it'll be what it'll be for a while. We're, we're telling you we don't think any of our companies need capital and they'll be fine, but time, time will tell, you'll yeah. see. But the public record will show that once the share price got below about 60-odd cents, I couldn't resist. I bought another half a million myself. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I always put your money where your mouth is, I think. Yeah, I think and, that's important. And, and if ever I'm looking for indicators of how people really feel, I just went, Follow the money. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, I was talking about this with Dad and he's a shareholder and it happened so quickly, the price drop. I was like, you know, and it dropped down to 40 or 50 cents or whatever it was. And he's like, what the hell? I completely missed that. God, <laughs> <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> but, um, should, should have got in. Whilst the share price has recovered, as as you say, the portfolio has done even better. So the, the, the discount to net tangible assets is actually wider than it was before. Our NTA per share is, I think, $1.37 now, and the share price is about $1.03. And so for those value investors, uh, <laughs> it's opportunity right there. Yeah, yeah. You know, the latest growth numbers we, re- we released portfolio-wide, it was still growing at 20%. We think that'll continue and, and then in, in time accelerate. So the opportunity is not completely missed. It's just not, you know, the absolute 
no-brainer <laughs> uh, as, it, as it was before. It's interesting. There's another company that's starting to go down a similar path to us, uh, Thorny Tech, and they just announced yesterday a, a cap raise, which is an 18% discount to their NTA. So, you know, there's a, there's a market that already shows even comparable to that. We'd have some upside but we're going to be releasing a piece of analysis next month, which looks at the UK, where there's there's more funds that look like us, and we've we found ten, and uh, seven out of those ten traded a premium to NTA, because they've been able to demonstrate realizations and valuations higher than their NTA. That's what we aspire to do over time, and so. Yeah, we still think there's a there's a long way to go for the share price. It's yeah, interesting. is the reason that it's trades because a lot of a lot of LICs in Australia trade at a discount. But is the reason that your discount is so pronounced mainly because a lot of your holdings are private? So there's that illiquidity. Yeah, it, I I think you're hitting on a really relevant point there, Alec. This is how I see it. I think a lot of investors say you're a listed investment company, there should be a discount. You invest in private things, therefore the discount should be greater. I understand that step through of logic. However, if you take that second part and say, does the fact base support it? Well, as I mentioned 21 times, the fact base hasn't supported giving it a bigger discount. It's supported giving it a premium. So if we get that number up to 30 or 40 or 50 times where we've delivered Particularly, I think the key will be a couple of big high-profile cash realisations. I think that'll be the moment where the light bulb really comes on. And and this is a patient, long-term game. So I I don't worry about it day-to-day. I sometimes feel bad for people that if they're focused on that aspect of it. But this is a long game for us. David and Kirk and I hold $12 million of shares between us and uh, we're happy to leave that there and and keep it growing. Mm. Just one other point I would make on our share price and and why our discount might be high. You know, SiteMinder is over 50% of the portfolio. So, you know, it's an unusually high concentration. The reason is because it's grown so much. Mm. It didn't start out in that concentration. I think there's still a lingering wariness in the market generally about the fact that its customer base is hotels. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. Now, sure, it's spread across 35,000 hotels all around the world and it's it's been resilient through COVID so far. Just this morning at Bailador, we released our monthly net tangible asset statement. We dedicated our whole founders commentary this month to talking about SiteMinder. And we released a bunch of slides that the SiteMinder CEO used at a Goldman Sachs tech conference last week just to let people know look, this is solid as a rock. And so it'll be interesting to see if there's a reaction to that and people saying, well, actually, why is the discount so big if you've got these genuine winners in the portfolio and the largest holding super solid and and is likely to be uh, just a long-term cornerstone? In some ways, it's a problem. Like, I'm sure it's annoying for some of your shareholders, but it also, like, it curates shareholders that are truly going to be long-term because like the cash realization will happen at some point but it's just you have to be willing to live with the discount yeah Yeah. and we've had five partial cash realizations really just demonstrating the model and those have produced uh combined irr of over 42 percent and we think we'll just keep producing those but it's it's when we get some really big checks in that i think it'll come yeah that'll be nice (laughs) (laughs) we've touched on this a little bit but it feels like the australian tech industry is really starting to to grow like we we've obviously seen the wax stocks be the sort of big five we had the buy now pay later moment well uh, i think we're probably still in that moment but we're now seeing you know some more e-commerce and tech focused companies ipo you know adore beauty ipo'd recently doe ipo'd recently it feels like there's momentum in the Australian tech space as a whole. Are you seeing that on the private venture side as well? And sort of where are the areas of growth and areas of opportunity that you're, you're really seeing? 
Sure. I, I would agree with the statement that there's very positive sentiment amongst the investment community towards tech right now. And, you know, if you take one step back and think about the low interest rate environment that we're in, and it appears we're going to be in for some time, that tends to increase allocations towards growth. And so, uh, you know, growth is exactly what we're doing. And, and so we are seeing some more money flow into our sector. We're seeing people raise that haven't raised before. We're seeing other people raise funds. The good news is that the supply side of that equation in terms of available companies uh, to invest in has also been growing and building momentum over the last decade in a big way. I really feel like 10 years ago, there was a lot of money for startups and not a lot for expansion. And they used to call it the the valley of death. Mm. Not sure that's the case anymore. I think uh, the Australian ecosystem now is starting to cater pretty well for all the steps on the journey. And importantly, the, the mindset of founders and management teams these days, I'd say, is much, much more global. Really from the beginning, they're thinking about how can we be a very big business? How can we have a target addressable market of billions of dollars and not a, a few hundred million? And so I really applaud and encourage that bigger thinking, and it allows the, uh, the the businesses to have a much longer growth journey. So we're certainly seeing that. And then sector-specific, things are pretty hot. You mentioned fintech, the, the payment space, e-commerce, no doubt those valuations are significantly higher than they were before. SaaS probably is relatively high versus historic levels. If you went back and did a broad benchmark of, say, three years ago, two years ago, one year ago now, you'd see a, a gentle step up, mm-hmm. more than a zigzag. So, you know, quite valuable. And I think that's just as more and more people cotton on to how good the business model is. Well, you mentioned there the impact that interest rates are having on driving people more to the to the growth side. For people that are still trying to get their head around the whole macro environment and, and the impact of, I guess, monetary policy, are you able to explain what you mean by that? So if an investor has a set pool of capital, they'll often have a certain risk profile or a return or both in mind. When you're in a very low interest rate environment, the allocation that you're making to uh, fixed interest investments or anything that's linked to those is going to be producing a lower return than it has historically. And so if you want to stick to generating that blended all in return, it naturally points you towards higher growth assets to try and balance that out. Mm. Particularly in the current environment, I think lots of people are experiencing day to day how much more of a role tech is playing in their lives. And so it's a natural place to look for that growth. If you then look at some of the Australian businesses that have been doing so well on the international stage and producing really nice returns, well, there's the track record. And so those are all factors contributing. Mm. I would just add a, a little commercial for Bailador there. We're perfectly positioned to take advantage of all of that. We're just at a valued at a fraction of the, some of those larger comps on the on the ASX. So mm. we, we feel like we've got a lot of upside to harvest. Yeah, nice. Mm. Maybe you guys need to dual list in the UK to get some of the <laughs> premium over there. <laughs> that would mean getting on a plane more often. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. On that point around the low interest rate environments, one One thing that we've been asking the experts that we speak to is just specifically around things like discounted cash flows and risk-free rates. Because interest rates are so low, when you are doing some of that analysis, what rate do you use? Such a tough one. Look, to be honest, we use discounted cash flows as a cross-check, but never as primary valuation measure because they do depend so much 
and can move so much mm. <clears throat> depending on your discount rate. Yeah. We don't put a hell of a lot of faith in weighted average cost of capital models, particularly in the current environment with such low interest rates. If we're going to use them, we're going to keep rates up at a level of return that we would expect to see as opposed to what the textbooks might tell you. And so we'd be looking to include you know 25 to 30% as our implied cost of capital in order to arrive at valuations. But one of the, one of the things about our sector is it's quite easy for people to, to do a top down and go, well, the target addressable market's $40 billion. We only need 5%. Therefore, you should value us at an astronomical number, <laughs> yeah. even though our revenue is $5 million. Yeah. So, <laughs> you, you know, it just it, it gets a bit absurd pretty quickly. We're much more focused on the three-year plan. If those guys execute to that three-year plan, what would the business look like? And discount that a bit from what we think it could do to de-risk it a little and then say, well, if it has those characteristics, how should it be valued then? And look around at comps, same business model, same industry, same size. There's a lot of unit economics you can use in a software as a service business in particular. How much does it cost to acquire a customer? What's the revenue per month? What's your gross margin? You really want that to be 75, 80% plus. You want payback periods of about a year. You want churn levels at a gross level to be no more than 10 or 12%. You want net revenue retention which is taking into account customers you lose, take value off, but then customers that stay but upgrade Mm. or stick around with price rises, add. You want your net revenue retention to stick around 100% or better. That means you've got a solid base. And if you get net revenue retention of better than 100%, you're growing without even adding any new customers. So you you want businesses that look like that. You want lifetime value to customer acquisition costs of at least five times. So you need to believe that the business is going to be producing those sorts of things. And then you can start to use revenue multiples as as comps. But until you've got that sort of quality business, it's very difficult. Yeah. What would you say to a beginner investor, I guess, who is looking at the likes of, you know, Amazon's, the afterpays who are trading at incredibly high PEs and you hear they're listening to people say, you know, their PEs are ridiculous, steer clear, yet year after year, they're just churning away. What sort of advice would you give to them? The advice I would give to them is think about your time frame for investing. If your time frame is short, those prices are going to be driven by market sentiment. And so it'll just be the crowd surging in one direction or the other based off, oh, regulators are going to tax them or you know they're, they're, they're getting uh, traction in a huge market like China. So it'll, it'll be news-based and you need to just be aware of that. And it's very hard to use fundamental valuation analysis in, in the short term. Longer term, I would suggest people focus on the businesses that they think are going to be winners. Mm. Do they have sustainable products that people want to use on a long-term basis? Is the product market fit right? Do they have pricing power? What's the competitive situation like? Do they still have a huge addressable market ahead of them such that they can achieve high growth rates or are they going to plateau out and be producing cash and so you can start to use more sophisticated discounted cash flow tools and think about them on yield plays and the like? So it's a very difficult question because the the markets more than ever surge around on on news flow. And so know your time horizon. If you want to play in that short-term time horizon and you feel that you have an ability to stay on top of news flow and, and the zeitgeist, well, that's a certain style. It's not what we do. We think about holding for three to five years or longer. And the valuation, if you get it 5 10 15% wrong on the way in, if you hold it for five years and it's growing at 30% per year, it's going to be a winner regardless. Yeah. And so it's it's not the primary consideration for us compared to all those other things. Yeah. yeah, That's some good advice. We definitely talk about long-term investing on the podcast. I mean, yeah, there's nothing wrong with short-term investing. Bryce 
bought some trading books at one time and was going to learn charting. But um, yeah, I think long term for quickly us makes more put, sense. Quickly put them back down. I think, <laughs> I think you lose a lot more sleep if you're doing short term trading. Oh, it's yeah, just, yeah. yeah. It's and you got to spend a lot of more time staring at a screen. At a screen. You know, missing when, missing drops, like missing climbs in bloody stock charts. It's just <laughs> not worth it. No, yeah. I like the. You know, we recently just spoke to Nick Griffin as well, and he has a very similar approach of just you know find those big companies that are going to dominate their field and just back them in and, and hold. So yeah, it's it's a much more calming approach to investing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a business centric approach yeah. to investing. It's like cut yeah. all the finance noise and just focus on what you're actually buying. Paradoxically, when markets are falling, you you're sometimes at your calmest because that might be presenting another opportunity to get some more money to work at, at better value. Mm. If you're confident in the business and you feel you know it, yet you see the value dropping and there's a chance to get some more, well, that's the moments that you're looking for. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. Paul, we want to thank you for taking the time and coming back on. I love listening to you talk about Baylador. Um, <laughs> Are you more convinced now, Ren? No, I, I remain the same level of convinced. <laughs> nice. <laughs> on the show here, we love bold predictions, you know, looking into the crystal ball and thinking about what's to come. And so, so I guess as we get towards the end of 2020 and we look forward to 2021, what are you looking at in you know for the year ahead? What do you expect to see and do you have any bold predictions? Bryce mentioned at the start, I'm on the board of the Rajasthan Royals cricket team in the IPL. Uh, so my bold prediction there is Royals to win the IPL next year. <laughs> nice. Our internationals with Steve Smith, Joffre Archer, Joss Butler, Ben Stokes are going to be Jeez. coming into their own. Wow. Jeez. Strong team. Why didn't you win it this year then? <laughs> Long story. One, <laughs> one win off uh, making the finals and uh, no, lack of crowd, I'm going to say. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. A performer like Stokes they, they needs like a crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's one bold prediction. We actually haven't won the title since uh, 2008, so uh, we'll, be, we'll be pulling out all the stops. I would say, uh, here's another bold prediction, at least two, maybe three IPOs of Baylor portfolio companies within the next uh, 12 to 18 months. Okay. Wow. That's a big prediction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's exciting. Uh, AFR, did you hear that? Write a story about it. <laughs> nice. And any sort of trends or catalysts that you anticipate might sort of kick the market in either direction next year? I think the role of government will be key across the globe and certainly in Australia. The unemployment levels are going to be uh, be jumping up big time. The, the full impact of that sort of thing hasn't been felt because of the effectiveness of JobKeeper. Unless that's continued or replaced with something similar, I think we're in danger of having some pretty high unemployment levels and some pretty big impact from that sort of thing. And just getting back to normal and the pace at which that happens is mm. is absolutely going to be a key. Yeah. Well, Paul, as always, it's such a, a joy and pleasure to, to speak with you and hear what's going on at Baylor Looking forward to those three potential IPAs <laughs> next year <laughs> and uh, seeing how it all plays out. So thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.